0: Amen, Jesus, you conquered the grave. That's a debt that we'll never be able to repay. And yet we thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship you. And I pray that our worship was a sweet-smelling aroma before you. As our lives, as we'll learn this morning, are to be that sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice a burnt offering that pleases you and that is the aroma of life to believers and yet is the very stench of death to unbelievers. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me, empower me to powerfully preach the word of God this morning. Lord, we need to be taught your ways. Your body needs to be strengthened and built up this morning. Lord, use us to advance your kingdom for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take a seat if you would. Get your Bibles out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. A very familiar verse. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is the verse that we'll be looking at this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Andrew Murray was a pastor, teacher, and writer. I'm sure some of you have read uh, some of his books. And he obviously lived a, a very holy life. Before his children. His biographer noted the influence he had on his children. Just listen to this. Eleven of his children grew to adult life. And of course, back in the time when he was alive, that wasn't always a given. That your children would, would survive birth or, or live. So, eleven of his children grew to adult life. Five of the six sons became ministers of the gospel. Four of his daughters became ministers' wives, and of the second generation, ten grandsons became ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thirteen became missionaries. That, folks, I would say is influence. And that is Jesus' point in Matthew chapter five, verses thirteen and fourteen. We look at verse thirteen this morning. But as citizens of God's kingdom, we are to profoundly, please hear me on that, profoundly influence the world through our character, through the lifestyle lived out of our being as described in the Beatitudes. We are to have a profound influence upon the world. And now why are we to influence the world? Well, because it is a decaying world. Let's talk about that, a decaying world. Right around the time of Andrew Murray, a popular ideology or philosophy arose called Transcendentalism. You guys ever heard of that? A 19th century movement of writers and philosophers Probably the most well-known of them was Ralph Waldo Emerson, and some call this uh, transcendental, transcendentalism. But say that five times fast. Transcendentalism. I don't know. Anyways, we'll call it the T. Um, they followed this, this idealistic system of, of thought uh, based on upon other things. The innate goodness of humanity and incredible optimism. This was also called the Emerson Error, named after Ralph Waldo Emerson. Anyways, it was based upon the innate goodness of humanity. There's the first crack in your foundation and incredible optimism. Humanity would usher in a golden age in the 20th century based upon the theory of evolution In other words, man was getting better and better. Now, these writers and philosophers said at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, these five things would happen wars were going to be abolished, and there would never be a great war, disease was going to be cured. Uh, suffering was going to be eradicated. You know, you're reading these things, you might think that these people smoked marijuana because these are absolutely ridiculous things that they uh, postulated. Through education, the masses would stop drunkenness and immorality. And nations would talk, not fight, and the world would be characterized by peace. Well, how did these predictions play out? Well, military conflict took place during every year of the 20th century. (laughs) Think about that. Every year of the 20th century, there was military conflict. There were only short periods of time that the world was free of war, but the 20th century did not see one world war, but what? Two world wars. It's estimated 187 million people died in the 20th century due to war. Now we are still working on the cure for cancer, right? That was supposed to be cured, but we're still working on the cure for cancer. And not to mention all other diseases, including what right now are we trying to cure? COVID-19. If you turn on the local news on any given night, at any given night, you will find stories of what? Suffering. Education. It has not curbed drunkenness or immorality. The argument is now made that that has released even more of it. Nations, nations still do not talk, but rather fight, and the world is still in search of that elusive speech. The very thing that Miss America pledges. What's the one thing she wants? World peace. There we go. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus is his assessment of reality. And just put this into picture this in your mind. He's up on the mountain. He is preaching his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he starts off with the Beatitudes. And all those things would have obviously been hooks, they would have got people's attention because what he was describing was completely countercultural. It didn't make sense. From that, he goes into Matthew 5 13 and 14, being salt and light. He has already made, after his 30 years of life, and of course, he being God knows everything, that he has his assessment of the world. He sees the world for what it is—a rotten, decaying mess that needs saved. And so, our Lord is saying here in Matthew 5:13 that since we have a decaying and corrupted world, it needs salt to retard that decay and corruption that's his plan now here's the plan you are the only hope and you must understand this in the summer of 1977 i was 8 years old when my parents and joe you want to focus on this, this is all about you really, I thought about this. My parents took my family to see the movie Star Wars, A New Hope. I, I can still picture it in my mind, walking to the theater, I was so excited. Um, a large one income back then with a you know, family of six, and we didn't always get to do a whole lot, my parents tried to do as much as we could, but at the time we didn't have much money, but we did late in the season go see Star Wars, A New Hope, I was so excited. And like everyone else, I was captivated by the movie. My big gift for Christmas that year was an X Wing fighter. I was so excited when I got that. That went along with all my little small action figures, the collection of Star Wars action figures I had. I had a Chewbacca, a Darth Vader, and I think an R2D2. Or no, C3PO, one of the two. I got those. So I had a small collection of Star Wars action figures, and I was set. Here are some interesting facts about Star Wars, just to look this up, just to give you guys some information. Harrison Ford, who played who? Han Solo, as we know. He was paid $10,000 for Star Wars episode four, A New Hope. Think about that, $10,000. After watching Star Wars, it's reported that James Cameron, the director, Titanic, Avatar, and so on, I think also the Terminator series, right? decided to quit his job as a truck driver and entered the film industry after watching Star Wars. With inflation, the original Star Wars made the equivalent of $1.4 billion today. Think about that. But one of the most memorable lines of the movie, I I still remember it, and you probably do, it's not any clever play on words or or a gut-busting joke, but a simple line that is repeated several times throughout the movie. I think it's three or four times. Princess Leia's ship is under attack from the Empire, and she has just downloaded, by the way, they don't use that word back in the movie, downloaded, they didn't even know what that word meant, but downloaded information into R2-D2 that must be delivered to the rebellion on Alderaan. Now, do you remember what she said? This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Do you remember that line from the movie? Apparently, nobody other than Obi-Wan Kenobi could complete the mission. There was nobody else. This is the same point, believe it or not, that Jesus is making in Matthew 5.13. By God's design, mind you, are you ready? You, you are the only hope for the rotten, decaying world that we live in. The you, here's why I'm making a big point of this, the you in you are the salt of the earth, it's an emphatic pronoun. It means that you only, are the salt. I've said it different ways from this pulpit. We're the only game in town. Remember saying that? This is another way of saying it better than I could ever say it, and it's by our Lord. You only are the salt. The you in Matthew 5.13 is also plural. It meaning Jesus speaking to a large following, a large crowd, a large audience. He's addressing all the citizens of his kingdom. The you is a collective effort to influence the world. By what? Being salt. Because what comes before the doing? The being. If you were to literally translate verse 13, it would be this. The only salt of the earth is you. You. I mean, you just can't get past this fact. It really is the point of verses 13 and 14. Because the Beatitudes all build to this. You're poor in spirit. You're born of your sin. All the Beatitudes, the being, comes into what you do. You are the salty earth, and you and you alone. So this is the responsibility of every citizen of of God's kingdom. You are the salt of the earth. Let me put you this way. You, not governmental institutions, not educational institutions, not organizations, but you and you alone are the salt of the earth. By your being... Again, you influence the world. Because the verb are and you are the salt of the earth, that stresses being. It's in the indicative mood. It's, it's a mood of reality. And all that fancy grammar and language means this. His followers really are the specific salt factor in this world. It's living in reality. <clears throat> you want the reality, you want the truth, you are it. <clears throat> so those who live out the Beatitudes... Not might be, but actually are the salt of the earth. It's not that you might be. You are the salt of the earth. Furthermore, guess what tense that verb is in? Past or present? It's present tense, yeah. It's a constant condition. Meaning that your saltiness... You're continuing to be salty. You are continually to be salty. You are to continually to be salty. It's the lifestyle of every citizen of his kingdom, every day of their life on earth. And let me add this as well. It's not what we should be. It's what we are. Like it or not, you're the salt of the earth. Here's a question. And it's the only question that that is relevant. It's whether you're salty or whether you've lost your salt flavor. That's a question he's posing. So, let's take a moment. Let's talk about what I call just the facts of salt. Just some interesting points, I think, will give us a better appreciation of what he means by you are the salt of the earth. Salt, of course, especially in our time, but especially... You know, back in the time of Jesus, it was very, very valuable. Salt has always been valuable in human society. Now, while today we may complain if there is no salt on the dinner table, because it's important to us to do what with salt? Season or flavor our food, right? But in the time of the Greeks, salt was considered to be important for a different reason. It was considered to be divine. The Romans said nothing was more viable than sun and salt because in a day without refrigeration the only way they could preserve meat was to what they would salt it yeah they'd take the salt they'd rub it in there roman soldiers were paid with salt and if you were a lousy soldier then you weren't worth your salt salt was used throughout ancient society as a sign of friendship there were salt covenants Even today in the Arab world, if a man partakes of salt with another man, that means that they are under each other's care. Did you know that? Yeah. And even if an enemy came in and ate with a man and ate his salt, that man would be obliged to care for that enemy as if he were his friend. So salt was very valuable. And obviously the idea is if we are the it... If it's you and you alone are the salt of the earth, then obviously Christians are very, very valuable because it's only us through our character that is retarding the decay and the corruption in this world. Obviously salt flavors. Second point. The Apostle Paul understood this. This is why he wrote, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, yeah. So you may know how you ought to answer each person. So just as salt Seasons food to enhance flavor. Paul is saying that the believer's answers are to be enhanced with grace. It means wise or appropriate words as fits the occasion. In other words, it's the kind of language that it's most likely to provide the most attractive defense of the Christian faith. So we are to flavor life through our words. Salt so also Purifies. I don't know if you knew that or not. Paul wrote this to Timothy Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. The Romans connected salt with purity due to its glistening whiteness and because it came from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. Salt was the most primitive of all offerings to their gods. At the end of the day, the Jewish sacrifices were offered with salt. So then if Christians, if the Christian is to be the salt of the earth, obviously this would imply what? Our lifestyle must be holy. It must be pure. Let me just read to you an obscure passage that talks about, combines the idea of holiness and influence in the life of Elijah. It says, one day when Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And this is is the lifestyle of Elisha. This is what the text says, verse 9. And she said to her husband, and again, just think about the influence here. Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, Who is continually passing our way? Something about Elisha's lifestyle oozed this holiness, this purity. He'd have to say a word, she just knew. He was holy, that's influence. But salt also, this is a part of salt that we may not like, also from a spiritual sense, it stings. You never pour salt in the Noponun, right? Because salt stings. But they did, and if you're in an emergency, you can, and it's a good thing to do. Well, why? Because some bacteria are what? Salt sensitive. The salt cleans promotes healing. It draws out water and bacteria out of the wound. We don't do that anymore, but if you are in an emergency out in the wilderness or something, you can salt a wound. But in the same way, We are, see, to salt by our words. Just listen to this. You stiff-necked people. This is Stephen talking to Jewish people. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, who would ever connect such direct words stinging words critical words words that cut to the very issue cut to the bone get right to the heart of the matter with a man who was full of the holy spirit when we speak the truth we can convict people of their sin Even though the words sting or hurt, because so often we don't want to offend, right? The motivation behind the words in this passage is the Holy Spirit. Stephen spoke these words while being full of the Holy Spirit. See, by our words, we can and should sting. Call people to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ but we are also to be salt by our lifestyle. Billy Graham was playing golf in at Foursome years ago with a friend and two other players. And after finishing 18 holes, one of the players quietly complained to his friend about the Reverend Graham. Who does he think he is to speak to me that way about my sin? He said with an angry tone in his voice. Curious to know what Billy Graham had said to his friend, he asked, what did he say to you? To which his friend responded, nothing. Second Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. For we are to God, the Rome of Christ, among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. By our lifestyle, be the fragrance of life to believers, but be the stench of death to unbelievers. Be salt, flavorful for some, but stinging to others. Salt also creates thirst. We know that, right? Have you ever been in difficult circumstances that are known by unbelieving friends? You're going through a difficult time. From a distance, they quietly observe your conduct And they're amazed and confused. So they finally ask you, why do you have such a peace about you despite your circumstances? You see, this type of spirit empowered life, it's attractive. It reveals that you have something that they don't have. And what you have, hopefully, they want. In that sense, you're being salt creating thirst. But I believe that our Lord's primary reason amongst all the uses of salt is salt preserves. That's probably his intent here in this passage. As I told you, they used to rub the salt into the meat to preserve it. In other words, we are to be an antiseptic in the world to slow the decay or to retard the corruption of the world. Just listen to this. I'm giving you a, a, a little bit of a longer example of this. Of the idea of salt being a preservative. This is Genesis 18, 22 through 33. This is about the angels that are going to destroy Sodom. It says, so the men, meaning angels, turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So in other words, Abraham is talking to who? Probably the pre incarnate Jesus Christ. He's talking to God. Okay, And this also typifies and is a symbol of or example of Christianity is a relationship with God. He is talking to God. And actually he's not even talking really. What's he really doing here? He's negotiating. Right? He is negotiating with God. Here's our Lord's response. And the Lord said if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? In other words, now I'm going down to what? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. You know, I want Abraham as my real estate agent, right? Right? to negotiate for me? Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. The Lord's patience is astounding. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. So we're from 50 down to 10. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy. And that was the Lord's bottom line. I can't go any lower. 10 is it. That's my bottom line number. That's the best deal you're going to get, Abraham. And the Lord went his way. We had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So, if there were 10 righteous people, Sodom and Gomorrah would be preserved. You follow me? So not being destroyed is it's being preserved. And that's what salt does. It preserves. I and mean, that leads to the final point, and that is what we call tasteless Christianity. Actually you could call it the problem of tasteless Christianity. Look at verse 13, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. One of the reasons why our Lord was such an effective teacher is he spoke with authority, but he also spoke in ways, and taught in ways that were relevant. Obviously, salt can lose its saltiness. We know that, and so are the people of Jesus' time. But what did they do with tasteless salt? Well, they did two things, history tells us. They would mix this tasteless salt with gypsum. You've heard of gypsum before? It's a bitter tasting substance, and they create a paste from it that they would use to patch holes in their roofs. Now, most homes in that time didn't have a front or a back porch where people could hang out. Instead, they had a lanai, and the lanai was on the roof of the house. This is where people hung out during the day and during the night. Especially if they wanted to get cool at night, they would go outside and up to the roof, hang on to the night. Jesus referenced this in his warning to his followers about the great tribulation that follows the abomination of desolation. It is so urgent to immediately flee from this judgment that you do not leave your house top and take supplies from inside your house. Remember that? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee the mountains. Watch this. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. So the housetop, the rooftop, is where you kind of hung out. So on the housetop, that was often patched together with what? Salt mixed with gypsum. People would trample under feet the tasteless salt and gypsum mixture. But they also would take this tasteless salt, salt that's lost its taste, and they would throw it alongside the road. And what would that do? It'd kill the vegetation and the weeds, and it kept the roads clear. And obviously, the salt would be what? Trampled under people's feet. So he's speaking to them with an imagery in a way that they understood these references. It would create a picture in their mind. Ah, I understand what he's saying now. But this is one area where we completely misunderstand this verse. Because some think that salt losing its taste refers to a believer losing their salvation. That is not the context at all. It's not Jesus' intent. But what is Jesus referring to? Well, let me show you. Just listen to this. This is Genesis 13, 8 through 13. So Abraham said to Lot, let not, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Let's park company. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and pitched his tents near near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So where did Lot pitch his tents? Near Sodom. So Lot lived near Sodom. Now let's go out to Genesis 19, verses 1 and 2. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was now sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. So now he was living near Sodom. Where is he now living? In Sodom, in Sodom. exactly. Lot lives in Sodom. Lot is a picture, and he's righteous by the way. It's, he's called Righteous Lot. Lot is a picture and not by his lifestyle, but by his faith more or less. Lot is a picture of a citizen of God's kingdom who has lost his or her saltiness. Well, what happened? Even though Lot was righteous, he looked more and more like a citizen citizen of what kingdom? In this case, like a citizen of Sodom. The ways of the world and sin slowly crept in to Lot's life. And it eventually short circuited his ability to influence people for righteousness. Abraham had just negotiated from 50 down to 10. 10 righteous people. If there were 10 righteous people in Sodom, it would be preserved. Lot lived there for years. How many righteous people were in Sodom? Well, maybe nine, but that's as high as it goes. So in all that time, Lot lived in Sodom. He was not able to influence just 10 people. Because if there were, God would not have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's a delicate balancing act to be what? In the world, but not of the world. Jesus said this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So for his citizens, don't take them out of the world. Well, why would he say that? You're the salt. But protect them from the evil one. It says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So in other words, while they're in the world, sanctify them in truth. Transform them. Let them grow into holiness. Because as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Don't take them out, we're sending them into the world because they and they only are the salt of the earth. You are the only hope. That is who you are. James put it in simple terms. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with God, or friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, you cannot be friends with the world And friends with God. That's the problem of tasteless Christianity. And this is God's ultimatum. There is no middle ground, it's an either or friendship. We must live in the world, but be distinct from the world. And that's not easy. If we are to fulfill the mission that Jesus entrusted to his followers in this world, then we cannot be corrupted by the world. We cannot adopt the ways of the world. And as for some of you learned, it was also, it extends as far as even your voting. Educate yourself. What the parties stand about, vote biblically. But practically, what does all that mean? It means that we cannot drink of the world's morality or materialism or self-centeredness or easy solutions or its philosophies. We don't think that way. Now, there's a lot of unnecessary confusion in our world about a person's identity, right? Namely, the gender identity. There's a, it should never be. Your physical identity is one of the simplest things in the world. You either are a male or you are a female, right? But our messed up world, our postmodern world, has confused this, and it's stupidity. But it's not only confusing, it's also destructive. The actual physical gender identity crisis, it threatens to destroy the world, particularly women's sports. (laughs) These are all over the internet. Consider the case of Rachel McKinnon. Rachel McKinnon is a philosophy professor at the College of Charleston. She was born as a biological male and considers herself a trans woman. She also considers herself a world champion in women's cycling and often brags about her, her achievement on Twitter. Uh, As you can imagine, you think that went over well with the actual other female competitors? No. Well, her response to them, particularly the one who finished in third place, who was an actual biological female, was this. Now, listen to this. We have no idea why men, on average, outperform men. I think a lot of the gap is sociological, not biological. We have no idea why men outperform women in sports, no Mr. McKinnon, we do. (laughs) Men are bigger than women, we have more muscle mass, skeletal muscle constitutes about 42% of a man's body, but only 36% of a woman's body mass. I mean that is basic textbook anatomy and physiology. And what is interesting is what a response was from Dr. Kathleen Spock, she's a, She identifies as a lesbian, not queer, so she's not like a believer or anything or a conservative. But she also also is a philosophy professor. This is what she said in response to Dr. McKinnon's boasting. You ready for this? You beat a bunch of females due to genetically endowed features none of them could hope to have. God bless her. She spoke the truth, right? Now, this postmodern world that we live in, And the way of the world, which is not to be our way, you should know what Dr. McKinnon's response was. Do you think it was responsibility? Or was it blame? This is what she fired back on her Twitter account. Professor Kathleen Spock has gone full transphobic bigot on me. This is the way of the postmodern world. You proclaim the truth, and what happens? You're labeled a bigot. That is the way of the world. The arguments like these, disgustingly so, are being played out across the world. The physical gender identity issue, it will destroy women's sports. My point is this, is that true identity matters. I'm not talking about physical identity here. We're beyond that. Spiritual identity, who you are, it's under attack. For the citizens of, God, of God's kingdom, identity matters. You see, at the moment of salvation, who are you identified with? With Jesus Christ. God gives you his son's righteousness and sees you as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. So how you identify yourself is at the core of who you are. And Jesus is saying, you must identify who you are. You either take on the identity of Christ, or you will take on the identity of the world. Christ isn't confused. The world is confused. And this is the hard question that really Matthew 5, 13 asks us. When we choose to identify with Christ, and we lived out this beatitude life, we will be different. But not all believers make this choice. They look an awful lot like the world. And by doing so, what ultimately, in end, are we doing? We are adding more confusion to an already confused world. Francis Chan said this. I want to close with this simple quote. Something is wrong when our lives as believers make sense to unbelievers. Something is wrong when our lives as believers make sense to unbelievers. We are to be different counter-cultural, a mystery. So I want you to simply ask yourself this question, how salty are you? How salty are you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words spoken to us this morning. We thank you for Just opening our eyes. I hope that there is some conviction here. I know that was convicting to me to sit there and look at my life. How much influence do I have in my life? How salty am I? Are people attracted to you because of my lifestyle? We are to be different. And I pray that we would take some time this week And ask yourself, how salty am I? Because for those that you've put in our lives, we very well may be the only chance they get for eternal life. We are the only hope. May we be salt. May we be the salt of the earth. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Stand with me, and let's close with a song this morning.